World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Shashank Joshi, filling in for Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. India's government has made extensive and impressive use of technology in delivering services to its huge population. But what happens when people can't access the apps that they need for education, rations or benefits? We look at the downside of government by tech. And perhaps you've rented a dress for a special occasion or a dinner jacket. But have you ever had a subscription for clothes? We consider the prospects of fashion company Rent the Runway as it goes public today. First up, though. This week, the United Nations warned that Afghanistan is on the cusp of the world's worst humanitarian crisis. More than half the population, some 23 million people, won't have enough to eat come November. There is a tsunami of destitution, incredible suffering and hunger spiraling out of control across Afghanistan, pushing millions and millions of its people to the brink of survival. The economic crunch is only getting worse. In its most recent report, the IMF said that Afghan GDP might shrink by as much as 30%, thanks to falling imports, a depreciating currency, and inflation that is out of control. The UN's also predicted that 97% of Afghans will be impoverished by the new year. Desperate people will take desperate decisions, from selling their children, as we have all seen reported in the media, migrating in search of support, or sadly joining radical groups that offer short-term solutions. One of those groups is the local branch of Islamic State, a fierce opponent of the Taliban. More than 40 people were killed earlier this month when Islamic State suicide bombers struck a mosque in Kandahar. That isn't just a problem for the Taliban. Yesterday, a senior Pentagon official warned that Islamic State in Afghanistan could have the capability to attack the United States within six to 12 months. The intelligence community currently assesses that both ISIS-K and Al-Qaeda have the intent to conduct external operations, including against the United States. Uh, It raises fresh questions over whether the Taliban can really fulfill their promise to stop terrorists from using Afghanistan as a springboard for attacks abroad. And all of this poses a really tough dilemma for Western powers. Do they continue to hold back aid in the hope of isolating the Taliban until its behaviour changes? Or do they step in to alleviate the suffering? This is a crisis that's been a long time in coming, but the Taliban takeover has really tipped it into a new phase. Ben Farmer writes about Afghanistan for The Economist. 
The country for a long time has been suffering from drought, it's been suffering from war, a lot of people have been displaced. But the Taliban takeover has accelerated this and it's really deepened the crisis. Ben, how exactly did things get so much worse so quickly after the Taliban's takeover? The country was receiving about $8.5 billion of aid each year and that funded three quarters of the government budget. And that stopped almost overnight when the Taliban took over. Now, the country's $9 billion worth of foreign reserves were frozen as well. And this was done to prevent the Taliban getting their hands on it. But it's had a catastrophic effect on the economy. The government had a huge payroll. 220,000 teachers were getting paid, large numbers of doctors, large numbers of nurses, large numbers of security staff. These people have not been paid for months and months. Also, the economy was relying on dollar shipments from the outside. Those have also ended. So what you have left is that the money is devaluing and inflation is climbing and lots of people have no income whatsoever. All of this humanitarian suffering wasn't the intention of cutting aid to the new Taliban regime. Do you get the sense that outside donors, Western powers are getting squeamish? Do you think the aid might come back? The donors are caught in this quandary. They see themselves faced with this new regime, the Taliban regime. It is a regime which it appears as time goes on has not changed. They still have links with Al-Qaeda. They're not giving women freedoms. They don't appear to be living up to their promises of an amnesty or of inclusive government. So international donors are very reluctant to support the Taliban or to give them recognition. But by stopping this aid overnight, they are also causing extreme suffering to the Afghan people. What about the geopolitics of this? China and Pakistan have both engaged with the new Taliban regime. Even US representatives have met with the Taliban in Qatar. Is there any diplomatic manoeuvring going on here? And does aid play into that? There is manoeuvring. There is what's being called the next round of the great game. And Pakistan and China are looking to engage and see what they can get from the Taliban. For example, China has offered aid, but what they're offering is just a drop in the ocean compared to what other foreign donors have withheld. Okay, so how does this all look from Kabul? Where's the Taliban in all of this? They run the country now. They have to hold it. Are they not worried about a humanitarian crisis? Are they changing their behaviour in response to try and coax some of this money back into the country? I think the Taliban are worried. I've spoken to officials who've had dealings with Taliban finance ministers and so on, and I think that they don't know what to do. They don't have people who are trained in this. They don't know what to do to make the situation better. So the Taliban are doing two things. They're blaming the international community, but they're also trying to get the international community to turn those aid taps back on. Within the Taliban itself, are there splits or divisions over how to handle this problem, over how far to compromise ideologically in order to secure the goodwill of donors? 
I think what we've seen in the last couple of months is how little appetite there is from the Taliban to compromise. It seems that their positions have hardened. It seems that some of their promises about things like women's rights are just not being fulfilled. I think they have to cater to their foot soldiers. Ben, how do you see the next few weeks and months? Winter in Afghanistan can be very harsh, can't it? Yes, it can. And the predictions for the next few months are very grim. At the moment, you have this standoff between the Taliban and Afghanistan's former donors. As this standoff continues, more Afghan people will suffer. And they really are in a terrible situation. At the moment, you have people selling their possessions in Kabul just so they can buy food. We've already had the first snows in Afghanistan. The temperatures will drop very quickly. It will get difficult to transport food to a lot of the country. So donors might be reluctant to fund the Taliban or to work with the Taliban, but they have to ask themselves if instead they're prepared to punish the entire nation. Ben, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. India's population is immense. Catering to 1.4 billion people requires its government to think on a different scale, to innovate. In recent years, it's turned to tech. Online schooling, financial benefits, food programs, they're all among some of its most important public services that are now digitally served. On social media, there are ad campaigns to enroll in the country's sprawling biometric database. People from all walks of life are having their fingerprints taken, their retina scanned, to access some of the most basic public services. In many ways, it's been a success. But the high-tech dream isn't always living up to expectations. Governments in India want to take advantage of its huge pool of really highly skilled labor and computer expertise. And they want to use this to sort of leverage that power to bring essential services digitally to people. Max Rodenbeck is the Economist South Asia Bureau Chief. There's a sort of utopian vision to this, you know, that India will be, you know, a fully digitized nation and will work with the same efficiency as, you know, richer countries. The trouble is that a lot of the countries poor are just cut off. I mean, they lack either the means to reach the knowledge or the education to use it. And so the two ends don't often meet. Max, give us a sense of when this all works well. Do any examples come to mind? Sure, very easily. I mean, sometimes this all works wonderfully well. For example, in my own case, I had to get a driver's license in Delhi, India's capital. And I tried to do the same thing, and I will will not name two other cities, but one developing country and one highly developed country, and in both cases faced big trouble 
in the developed country, just proving my address turned out to be an insurmountable problem and took weeks and weeks of, of trouble and papers. And in the underdeveloped country, I had to end up paying a bribe. By contrast, I got my driver's license in India within 20 minutes. I mean, I took both a computerized test and an actual road test, all extremely efficient. And as I left the, the building, uh, my phone pinged and it said I'd receive the license the next morning. I sort of thought this was unlikely. But actually, next morning, eight o'clock in the morning, uh, the doorbell rang and there was a courier presenting me with a, a new chip encoded card. And, and Max, how have they managed that feat of impressive bureaucratic agility? Well, the key in this case of the driver's license was something called Adhar, which is a, a huge biometric database that has tried to give every single person living in India a 12-digit number that, through which they can be recognized. So that when you present your card, that means that that is your address. You are who you say you are. And it's made things hugely easier for getting basic uh, government services. My impression is that smartphone use, internet use in India is pretty ubiquitous. So can everyone take part in these programs? Well, theoretically, yes, absolutely. I mean, it's available to, to everyone. And at this stage, something like Adhar, something like 98, 99% of Indians do have an Adhar card. But the trouble is that that doesn't automatically mean that you get access to everything. You know, the sheer scale of the country means that tens of millions are going to be left behind. You know, they either are living someplace which has no electricity, they have no internet access, they have no telephone access, they don't own a, a smartphone. So, for example, there was a rollout of when India's vaccination program for COVID-19 started, the government had this very fancy and very efficient and very nice program, COWIN, which you had to sign up on in order to get your, your vaccination. And I did this, no problem at all. It's all in English, all worked brilliantly. I got both double, double vaccinated in short time earlier this year. The trouble is that it, it was only in English and the number of Indians who can speak in English or read it rudimentarily is perhaps 10% of the country. So this became an obstacle for lots of people. A lot of this seems to be about improving public services. Are there more traditional, non-digital ways that you've seen of doing that that have stood out to you? Absolutely. No, India has a long tradition of rolling out, you know, mass public services that, that cover the whole country. And there's another government program, for example, that provides sort of kindergartens for preschool kids, and there's a, a free meal provided. And this is all great. It's a, it's a decades-old program, uh, serves millions of kids. It's had a tremendous uh, uh, impact on childhood malnutrition and so on. But in order for the government to monitor how these things are working, the government actually issued cell phones to some of the teachers at these schools and then obliged them to download software to sort of feed in all the information about the schools that they're running. Again, a lot of this was in English. The administrators, the, the teachers didn't speak English. So it's turned into a struggle between the, the, the local level and the centralized level, where the central government, they, they keep talking about how wonderful this linking everything through one system is. And actually, at the, the street level, it's just a hassle for the people running these schools. So is there a better solution? Well, actually, a different study uh, showed that simply by paying a half-time extra teacher for each of these schools, you know, and the cost of that would be about the same as all of this software and hardware given out to teachers, simply by adding a little bit of extra manpower to these small one-room schools, they would hugely improve all the outcomes. So given all of those issues around infrastructure, why has there been such a push to digitize by the Indian government? Well, I think on the one hand, they do want to leverage India's high-tech industry. I mean, they have, you know, a lot of tech wizards. India is the sort of back office for a lot of the world. And so there is this expertise. 
But the trouble is that a lot of the expertise is located in India's big cities. Bangalore is the most famous uh, sort of hub of, of I, the IT industry. And, you know, a lot of wonks in these places who are living pretty modern lives in little apartments with little cars and fancy offices, they sort of tend to forget what it's still like out there in the rest of India, where people have no access to any of those things. And that sort of detachment is also compounded by the politics behind all this. You know, politicians often want quick solutions. So often such projects are, are rushed into without proper study, often, you know, study of, of how the software is going to work. So we often have this disjuncture between, you know, the policy and the actual implementation. Is there a, a political side as well? I mean, you know, information is power to some extent, and a lot of this information would perhaps previously have been held at local levels by provincial officials and, and civil servants, and a lot of it's now flowing centrally. Is that attractive to the government as well? Absolutely. That's attractive to the government, but that's also caused some pushback from civil society in fear of all this data being accumulated by the government. You know, there's some of these programs have been attacked and even shot down by the courts for being overly intrusive, you know, intruding on people's privacy. So it, it sounds like it works very well in some areas and you have your, your shiny new driving license overnight and that's great, but there are still big problems. Overall, do you have a sense of whether tech is is a good thing, harmful, whether the balance has been struck? properly? I think tech is an excellent thing. And it really does provide some really good solutions for a lot of problems that are on an Indian scale. There's no question of that. But I think there also need to be safeguards, oversight, and a bit more thought put into how tech is used. In its rush to become a modern and digital economy, India does risk leaving behind a lot of people who, who might actually benefit the most from this sort of high-tech revolution. Max, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Shoshan. For those of us who would, as the singer Morrissey puts it, go out but haven't got a stitch to wear, Rent the Runway, a Brooklyn-based fashion company, has spent the past decade trying to help. Who needs a closet full of clothes when you can rent the runway? Endless styles, infinite possibilities. Today, it's taking a big step out of the closet and onto public markets, where it's been priced at a whopping $1.3 billion. The question is if investors ultimately buy Rent the Runway's pitch that it can make long-term profits off of short-term rentals. Rent the Runway was founded back in 2009 as a shared designer closet. It's a subscription service that lets users rent and shop secondhand clothes from hundreds of designer brands. Carly Wanner writes about U.S. business and politics for The Economist. Today, that might not seem revolutionary, but in 2009, Rent the Runway was a trailblazer in the retail industry. And why did it take them so long to go public? Rent the Runway has been through a lot of changes since its inception. Its executives have been focusing on expanding the company. So they've added homeware to their offering and started a resale business, among other things. But COVID-19 really set them back. The business depends on events and people having a reason to dress in expensive clothes. So amid lockdowns, their sales declined nearly 40 percent in 2020, and their subscribers tumbled from over 130,000 at the end of 2019 to less than 55,000 by the end of the next year. But they survived and their performance has started to pick up. 
So, Carly, I mean, in terms of renting clothes, uh, the most I've ever done is the odd suit for a wedding or something. Is this really a billion-dollar business now? Yeah, well, critics have called that valuation too high, especially given the significant losses Rent the Runway suffered in 2020. Its direct competitors are companies like Poshmark, which allows you to buy and sell designer items or thread up an online thrift store. Both of those companies are doing really well, but they also had less ambitious IPOs. And Rent the Runway did use some creative accounting in the financial documents it filed before listing. And how creative are we talking here? Most notably, it essentially said that the clothes it rents out don't lose value over time as quickly as you might expect. That led some critics to suggest it was understating the cost of running its rental business. It remains to be seen once shares start trading today if other investors agree. So beyond just today, do you think the company has a solid future? Have you ever used it? Have you tried the business? I personally have not. My sister did. She loved it. And it's possible that the company will benefit from the growing demand for alternatives to fast fashion retail. And that's certainly something the company touts, saying it's more environmentally friendly to rent clothes instead of buying them. In that regard, it hopes to join other do-gooder companies aiming to go public this year, like Warby Parker, a glasses manufacturer, and Allbirds, a shoe firm that are aiming to make money by doing more than highlighting their bottom line. Well, Carly, I was disappointed to see it doesn't have any menswear, but thank you for introducing me to the concept of rental clothes, and thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks so much. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. See you back here tomorrow. peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream. But what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.